So I said, I bet you'll find, surprisingly, that the hippopotamus is there, but that the lion isn't. The hippopotamus is considered by many to be the most dangerous animal in Africa. The hippopotamus kills more human beings than any other animal in Africa. It's not the lion. The lion just can't be bothered with all that. He's too majestic. He's on top and he knows it. I've been there. I've been in the little safari truck and I've been there and we pull up to the big African, you know, the big male lion with the big mane and he's sitting in the grass and there's a little half a circle ring of these little safari trucks all around him and these people all poking their heads out of every corner and taking pictures. And if he's anything, he's just annoyed. He's not scared. He's not threatened. He's just trying to have an afternoon. He's like, you know, guys, I had a nice meal. Could you just leave me be? Can you just leave me alone? But he's calm. And the hippo's not like that at all. The hippo, I'm told, will, if he finds that his little path from the river to his little bathroom spot is blocked by anything on his way back to the river, will go into a full-on panic. And on those little short stubby legs can go 40 miles an hour for a short distance and will charge and basically open that huge mouth with razor-sharp tusks and just really cause a whole lot of trouble. So I said, I bet you'll find the hippos there, but the lion isn't. Ever since I saw the lion, the calm, majestic, just above it all lion on the Masai Mara, ever since then, I have loved the little lesson we heard this morning. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. That word bold, it has this sense of, of being, of being confident, of knowing who one is. How do we come to the place that we're not frantic, desperate, scared, defensive, lashing out, going over the top like the hippo, but rather we're stable, steady, calm, maybe even touching on majestic like the lion. How do we come to that place? Well, this autumn we've been talking about God's mercy and his forgiveness. Now, we started off when we started way back in September, we started off with some fantastic individual stories, stories of Jesus showing mercy to individuals, some of these wonderful, touching, poignant, deep, and important moments. And then in the past, in October, we moved, the past few weeks, we've moved into more of how did God want his mercy to get worked into the society of the people that were his, that he wanted them to order their lives after his heart. So we talked about this amazing thing of the Jubilee, this incredible idea of, of the Jubilee, and then Mako Nagasawa was with us, and he helped us take that Jubilee idea to a next step. And then last week, Jennifer very beautifully helped us to, to see how there are people who still longing for mercy and for reality to be acknowledged and justice to be brought to them regarding situations around racial trouble in our country and in its past. Today, we want to talk most specifically about forgiveness, God's forgiving us, and how that is the deepest place 
the core root place that allows us to be like the lion, to be bold, to know that we are okay, to know that we have a secure identity and a secure story, and therefore we can be as bold as a lion. We're no longer worried, does whoever it is out there care about me? Does he like me? Is he keeping the score? We're not looking over our shoulder. We're stable. We're steady. We're able to carry on and to go forward. The beginning place, friends, the beginning place is that God is always showing us so much more mercy forgiving us so much more than we even realize. We heard in our little gospel lesson what it means to be a fully alive human being. What is a fully alive human being? What would a fully whole, fully well, fully alive human being look like? It would look like a person who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, and loves their neighbor as themselves. Any takers? Any, has anyone here done that? I had a, I had a dear friend, a, a, a woman I really enjoyed chatting with, used to work with her in a school, and we'd end up in the office in certain times that there wasn't a lot going on and, and it was great getting these deep conversations. She had a she had a necklace with a with a tree pendant on the end. I love trees. I think trees are amazing. They're fantastic. They're interesting. I liked her, her pendant. So one day I just said, hey, that's a really interesting pendant. You know, where'd you get that? What's that about? And she said, oh, um, my friend so-and-so gave me that. It's about growth. I said, oh, that's wonderful. And then she looked at me and just sort of out of the blue, I didn't bring the topic up. She looks at me and she goes, because Tim, you know, I am not a sinner. And I thought to myself, okay, wait a minute. First of all, I've never called you a sinner. We've never talked about sin before. I have no idea how this became the thing we're going to talk about. But I just looked at her. I said, really? You're going to claim that? Let's talk about what it means. What it means is all the time, with all of my being, not just what I do, although yes, what I do, what I think, what I desire, what I want, naturally, if you will, would all the time, with all of me, be to love God with all of my being and to love my neighbor as myself. So here's the irony. Being the lion comes of admitting something of how far from that I am and just giving up and casting myself on God's mercy. That's the great paradox of the Christian faith. Being as bold as a lion means giving up performance spirituality and just saying, I won't get there. I already haven't gotten there. I will never get there of my own energy. God, give me yourself. Do something to give me new life. God, friends, 
looks on us and he sees that we don't need just a little help. We don't need just a lot of help. We do need fellowship. We do need counsel. We do need friends. We do need healing. But underneath all of that, there's something ever deeper than all of that that we need. I need, have needed a gurney. I'm dead. I won't get there on my own, and I exhaust myself trying. And then I get frantic, and I become a hippo. I'm making myself bigger and bigger, but I'm also pretty anxious, pretty nervous. What if I don't make it, or what if you tread in my path that I was planning to make it? I'm going to have a pretty short fuse at some point. Or maybe I decide it's too much, so I decide to make God smaller. God can't really expect that. It's not reasonable. Let's redefine things. Let's rearrange them. Let's move the goalposts. The paradox of the Christian faith is that being the lion, having that stability, that peace, that inner core story and strength comes of realizing that God has known all along how far from the goal I fall, and yet he has made the move to show me mercy and love and to forgive me by giving himself as the human being reset. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself, in essence, in that world, using that image, what he's saying is, I am the human being reset. I am the human being as the human is meant to be. There's a Korean pastor in the 70s who wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. What he meant by that is Jesus. Jesus is not the special Christian life. He's the normal Christian life. He's the normal human being as we are meant to be. Recognizing how far we fall from that is not walking around carrying a burden of guilt. It's walking around carrying a smile of amazement that even though God has known always how far I fall from that, he has loved me first, reached out, moved towards me, and in Jesus given the wholeness of himself, even to death on a cross, that my life can end and his life can come in. I'm told that our Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, that some of their theologians speak of it as a blood infusion. The Hebrews knew that the life is in the blood. So Jesus sheds his blood, that our blood that's tainted and unable to reach the goal, to be a full, whole human being, our blood then is spiritually transfused, and the Jesus, the blood, the living blood of Jesus is put into us. It's both wonderfully organic, if you will, and it's also highly spiritual and amazing, if you will, all at the same time. That's why we need the Word of God breaking into our lives, and we need the table. We hear the Word, the Word breaks in, the Spirit moves, We're surprised, we're changed, we come to the table, we eat. 
the new life of Jesus gets into us. And that, friends, is when we can hear God saying, I have made you, I love you, and I know you. Twice in 1 Corinthians, for instance, Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. That's a theological idea that has gotten handled in some weird ways. God is not paying off Satan. God's not raging and saying, well, just, you know, beat him or something like that. God is preserving his perfect justice and his perfect holiness. And he's saying to me and to you, you being created in my image makes you so wonderfully special that the only way is for an equal thing to happen. And that equal has to be the human being. And so in Jesus, Jesus gives himself that it might be paid, that price that we all know in our gut. When something wrong has been done to us, we want a price of justice to be paid. And Jesus pays that price in himself, in love. But we've also gotten ourselves in some weird places sometimes when we've talked about how perfect God's standard is. Sometimes we've gotten ourselves into a weird place. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard, all sin is equal in God's sight? Anybody heard that? What verse has that? There's not one. Like many bad theological ideas, there is truth around the edges. It is true that none of us ever attain to the goal. None of us ever. There is no human being other than Jesus who has ever loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, and love their neighbor as themselves all the time, inside and out. When we set the goal right, then that becomes obvious. But that's not the same thing as saying all sin is equal in God's sight. The scripture never puts itself in that weird cul-de-sac. God's standard does not mean that all and any missing of loving God with our whole being or our neighbor and ourselves does not need atoning and forgiving. It is true. It's true. Even the slightest sin that hurts others the least, say, even that still needs forgiving. But still, it's never stated that it's all equal in God's sight. Read the prophets. The prophets get quite eloquent and quite passionate about some things more than others, about idolatry, about the mistreating of the poor, about the jubilee being ignored. The, passion, the, the, the prophets get quite passionate about these things. They don't suggest that they're all equal. Or look at the life of Jesus. Jesus comes and has, we might say, a special heart for the downtrodden, the vulnerable, those who have been sinned against. But he also recognizes that all people need to be forgiven. There's a famous moment that happened in the Nuremberg trials when Adolf Eichmann, 
Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi who was one of the planners of the whole Holocaust and the whole phrase, the final solution. Eichmann was on trial, and there was a concentration camp inmate who was going to testify. When Eichmann was brought into the court, the concentration camp inmate testified that he nearly fell over in the pew, in the, in the seat, rather, in the, in, the, in the room. And then after he testified, he did. He fainted. And he was asked later, people assumed that the reason why he fainted was because the sight of this awful man who had done such incredibly horrible things to him and to his family and to his people was just too much for him to take, and it brought back all those memories and triggered him. But he actually said no. He said that when he saw Eichmann in that context with all the years that had passed and without all his trappings of power, he realized in a horrible moment that he was just a person. And then he realized in a horrible moment that in the right moment, he too could have been, this one who testified, could also have been a horrible person who did these kinds of horrible things. It's deeply unsettling. I don't like it. I wish it weren't true. I wish it were simpler than that, that I could simply say, I and my tribe are the good ones and they are the bad ones, and it's just that simple. The truth is that whatever the matters of degree are in those ways, those matters of degree can be real, and they matter. And it's a correct observation, but at the same time, we all need to be forgiven. We all need Jesus giving of himself. The second time in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, you were bought with a price, he says this. He says, therefore, do not sell yourselves into slavery. In Paul's mind, rather than God's standard being so much higher than ours and being absolute and being so far away and being something we will never meet, rather than that, relativizing away all need for justice or the depth and reality of all things that are done in human life, rather than that, Paul's approach is God having given himself so wholly and fully for you, God who is holy and perfect and whose standard is completely other, having entered this life and given himself, raises up, if you will, the dignity of each person. The life of Jesus shows us that might does not make right. The life of Jesus shows us that more money, bigger brains, better looks, whatever it is, social prejudice, none of these things make right. And Paul's saying, because he has died for you, because God has loved you this way, because God has forgiven you, because of the dignity God has recognized that you have as being created in his image, if you can help it at all, don't sell yourself into slavery. That's not something that's befitting an image bearer of God. So if you can help it, don't do it. Now, often and usually, situations of injustice aren't chosen by people. But Paul's just saying it works the other way around. It's not that the far-off eternal height of God's standard makes everything here dissolve away and be relativized. It's as if the far-off and eternal height of God's standard shines a light back into now, from there, 
and says, look, look what goodness and justice and truth are. And they count even more here and now because I have loved these people. And it comes back in the person of Jesus to meet us and to be among us. What it does mean for me, it means I must not let my soul be consumed by hatred. I am forgiven. My life in God starts because of Jesus' move on the cross. Sometimes it's hard work, daily work, to come to the cross. Sometimes I come to the cross in prayer kicking and screaming. You all know I'm a passionate person when it comes to issues of justice. It's one of the things I like the most about myself. It's one of the things I like about so many of you. But I must never lose touch that the deepest reality is my life at the cross for me. That's the deepest reality. That is what gives me the hope of being the lion rather than the hippo. Left to myself, I will be the hippo every time without saying that the things don't matter, saying they do matter, and they matter very much. I had the opportunity to be in Kenya a good bit at one point in ministry, and I was in Kenya during the time when, and it was obvious that it was coming to its end. It was one of these Cold War things. We had supported them during the Cold War simply because the Soviets were moving into East Africa and trying to buy up friends. And for obvious reasons, we didn't want that to happen, so we supported this regime. But then once 1989 came along and the, and the Soviet thing fell apart, then that regime began to twist and turn and go in some bad directions. So I was there some, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, and you could see every time I went you could see the society dissolving a little bit more and a little bit more and more chaos and more crime and more corruption. And the corruption was endemic through all the structures of politics and of the police, and things were desperately out of control. The the energy in the city, it it felt like if you struck a match, the whole city would just go boom. I went to worship with our partners in their church. And I noticed, I expected them to name all this stuff. And I noticed they didn't name it. I was disappointed. I thought, you guys, come on, name it. Goodness gracious, if ever. But what I realized as the service went on was that the preacher would say something and they would all laugh. And I didn't get it. And this happened over and over and over. And I began to realize he's speaking in coded language. He's referencing the injustices of their society. And what I found out later was that they had referenced them and talked so freely about them that they had to stop because the government started sending informers into the church services and the pastors would have been hauled away. So they would speak of it in coded language. And because they all knew what was going on, they knew what he was saying and they would all burst out laughing, not because it was funny, but because they just had to get the energy out somehow. And these services were amazing. And these people would pray 
and they would sing. And then they're singing. They would, uh, there's this thing that East African women do where they hit this whole other thing and they sort of, I can't do it. I'm not going to try to do it. But they have this blah, 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 blah thing they do. It's, and it sounds silly when I do that, but it was, but it's not. And it's just a way of the passion picks them up and moves them to a different place. And they would, and they would be caught up in this. And these services would go on and on, and I would realize this is because these people are in a place where they can know that truth is here and justice is here. And we don't have to believe the lies that are being told us that are right in front of us all the time. And it was a place of soul breathing and soul life. They also very easily connected their life as a community working for justice to the new life that Jesus had given each one of them on his cross. And that shaped how they did this. And it shaped who they were and it shaped what they dreamed for. And it came out in their time, in their prayers, in their worship, in the energy of their community together. It's a beautiful thing. And they had it all together as one beautiful tapestry. Courageous, loving lions. Friends, let's pray. Invite you just to um, remember anything that troubles you about your own life, your own choices, moments when you've done things that um, you now look back and regret moments when you've done things you look back and you and you're ashamed of how you hurt another or of how selfish you were and know that Jesus knows that and he's known it all along and he took that to the cross. Can you sit at the foot of his cross and see that on him on the cross, willingly taken up there by him? Now let's flip it. What's the worst thing that's ever been done to you? You don't need to be forgiven for it. You didn't do it. It's not your fault. Can you see Jesus on his cross saying the whole world needs to be remade? There needs to be a new beginning. Can you see Jesus in his resurrection body off the cross coming to you and embracing you and saying, I know and I love you and I have mercy for you. It's not your fault. Whatever it is, friends, if it's what you've done, if it's what's been done to you, Jesus will meet you in it. And it's out of that energy that we live and move and work 
for goodness and justice and holiness and beauty in the world. Come, Lord Jesus, give us yourself.